This podcast is presented by SoCalREN, the Southern California Regional Energy Network. We're a collection of local governments that come together to promote energy efficiency programs for residents, businesses, and public agencies. Welcome to Re-Energizing Communities, your connection to conversations about energy efficiency that can help you influence change at home, at work, and in your community. Thanks so much for joining us. In today's episode, our host, Chris Ford, sits down with Kurt Johnson, Advanced Community Energy Manager with the Climate Center. They'll discuss how his organization helps structure energy efficiency-related policy at the state and federal levels, zeroing in on how this work can help California become more energy resilient. Let's get started. Kurt, thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us more about your role at the Climate Center and then share some of the organization's high-level goals for our audience? Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here today. The Climate Center is a statewide climate and energy policy nonprofit. I direct our community energy resilience program, and that is a subset of our broader flagship campaign called Climate Safe California. And the big goal of Climate Safe California is to get California to legislatively adopt an accelerated set of climate policy timelines which are commensurate with what the latest climate science is telling us we need to do to avoid global catastrophe. Climate is now hitting harder and faster than scientists thought just a few years ago, back when California has been adopting its climate policies. We're going to hit a dangerous threshold of warning as soon as 2027, decades earlier than initially projected. Most people are aware of the really devastating wildfires that have hit California in recent years. 2020, we hit over 4 million acres burned, about 4% of the state. Just play that math forward and say, wait a minute, does that mean we're going to, in the next 25 years, burn 100% of the state? Really scary things are happening, and it's happening a lot more rapidly than had been anticipated even quite recently. You know, the longer we wait to reduce emissions, the more it's going to cost in lives and property and dollars. So what can we do in California to combat climate change and prevent these potential losses? California has historically been a a global climate leader. Unfortunately, we've really fallen woefully behind. We're behind the EU, the UK, under conservative leader Boris Johnson, even behind President Biden. California should regain its leadership position in the nation, and hopefully we can kind of chart a path forward that is relevant as a model, not only for the U.S., but for the world. Our Climate Safe California campaign basically a science-based campaign, which is trying to get us to removing more carbon from the atmosphere than we emit by 2030. That's about 15 years ahead of our state's current goals. The campaign has a suite of policies for phasing out fossil fuels, sequestering carbon, investing in community resilience, which is what I lead for the Climate Center, and funding climate action. The campaign currently supported by over 1,000 elected officials, business leaders, scientists, organizations across the state. And based on work over just the past year and a half, we think there's some, been some shifts um, resulted that are directionally correct. Climate scientist Dr. Dan Cameron at Berkeley and other climate experts just published a paper on the need to Cal- for California to accelerate climate timelines commensurate with what we've been talking about in our Climate Safe California campaign. State Senator Henry Stern introduced the bill, SB 582, that would for the first time call for net negative emissions by 2035 building on our Climate Safe California vision. 
and also another bill that we have working on, SB 99, authored by Senator Dodd, and just cleared uh, the Senate Energy Committee. All of our climate safe California policies are guided by basic principles in terms of how we need to do this going forward. One, our policies need to be based on the latest climate science. Our state emissions targets right now are woefully behind relative to science. Two, we need to ensure a just transition for workers and communities dependent on fossil fuel industries. Fossil fuel is an important industry in California, as you're probably aware of. And we need to make sure that as we transition to a new fossil fuel economy, those folks are taken care of. And then finally, we need to prioritize lower income communities and communities of color, which have been disproportionately harmed by our fossil fuel economy and ensure that as we craft the economy of the future, these communities are put in the forefront of that transition. How can good policy at the state or federal level address the need to both try to mitigate the effects of climate change while also trying to help communities that are already being impacted by climate change adapt, and especially within the the equity context? How can good policy achieve both of those goals? So on a federal level, the Biden administration's infrastructure package talks about huge new investments in clean energy infrastructure, and they have said 40% of investments in new clean energy infrastructure should go to vulnerable communities. So that's taking a particular carve-out approach to how these federal dollars might be allocated. Similarly, on a a state-specific level, we've been working in the microgrid proceeding before the PUC, and notwithstanding the SB 1339 passed in 2018, which called for regulatory reform to accelerate microgrid development, did not include any specific language calling for creation of a special program to support development of microgrids in vulnerable communities. Working with a broad coalition of folks, we were successful in getting a decision approved by the PUC in January of 2021 that created a special pot of funds specifically devoted to prioritizing development of microgrids in vulnerable communities in California. Can you give us some perspective on your experience trying to structure policy at the state or federal level towards achieving energy efficiency goals at the pace and scale needed to contribute meaningfully to climate change mitigation? 20 years ago, I was working at EPA in the Climate Change Division, and there was a a regulatory change that occurred in California with the restructuring of uh, California's market, opening up the possibility for competition for electricity sources, and it created the opportunity for people to select a a different provider. At the same time, the Clinton administration had issued a update to so-called federal acquisition regulations or sort of directing that federal agencies should seek to procure, quote, environmentally preferable products and services that are where available. So the opening up of the electricity market through the regulatory change in California created an opportunity to for environmental improvements. Did a procurement to buy green power for the EPA laboratory in Michigan, California. We were the first federal agency to do that using that specific federal acquisition regulation change that's been made by the Clinton administration. And that rolled out into a broader federal effort. I sent some language to the folks in the White House. Federal agencies should buy renewable energy. And then we also started a program at EPA that I founded called the Green Power Partnership that was just basically taking the EPA program model for our Energy Star program, which is flagship energy efficiency program of EPA, which has basic playbook principles, create technical resources, create a recognition program, help point people in the right direction. 
And so built the Green Power Partnership based on the Energy Star program model to sort of try to standardize the concept of buying green power renewable energy as the best practice in corporate environmental management. 20 years later, here we are in California, and globally, there's been dramatic price reductions in distributed clean energy costs. Data is available from various federal sources, 80, 90% dramatic price reductions in, in the last couple of decades. That makes possible a whole new electricity system. We've had a sort of a 100-year-old model of central station power delivery, electricity only flowing one way, and everyone at the end turning their lights on and consuming power, but not producing it. So we now have the possibility to envision a whole new electricity system, which takes advantage of these dramatic cost improvements, which is dramatic acceleration of distributed energy resources, the ability for virtually everyone to be a net energy exporter. The similarity to what I talked about from 20 years ago is a change in the environment which has made possible an improvement. And so that's what we're doing with the Community Energy Resilience Program is trying to to build an entirely new electricity system based on potentially millions of of individual electricity generators, open local electricity markets to complement the open transmission scale electricity markets, and a much cleaner and more resilient system for California. Again, this is all made possible by dramatic technology changes the last 20 years. With how much the landscape has changed in 20 years, thinking about the best way to use state and federal funding to, again, achieve the the pace and scale needed in the energy sector to to reach climate goals and decarbonize, what do you see as the most effective ways to use that type of funding to achieve energy efficiency and renewable energy goals? Uh, Great question. On the wholesale level, if you look at current prices for utility scale wind and solar, those prices are, are already doing amazing things. You need to chase the harder to reach corners. I wrote lots and lots of press releases at EPA, and the standard line was electricity generation, the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., therefore this green power purchase is a great thing. Well, that's not true anymore. It's transportation. There are terrific things happening in the EV market as well, and so there's a huge need to drive, I think, investments there on a federal level to make that transition happen as as rapid as can possibly happen. There's EV charging infrastructure improvements called for in the Biden plan, and then there's similar efforts, obviously, with state policy here in California. That's a great area for, for, I think, uh, investments. And then you you get down into other components of carbon emission sources. I think it starts to get difficult, more time-consuming, costly, complicated from a programmatic level when you get down into everybody's home, where a lot of people have a legacy natural gas-fired furnace. I bought a home seven years ago that was built in 1957 that had a gas-fired boiler in the basement that we tore out and replaced with an electric heat pump system to run everything on electricity. Well, there was a lot of time and cost and hassle associated with doing that, but that's what needs to happen if we're going to electrify everything. We need to figure out how best to invest federal and state dollars and throw it at places where we can get the biggest bang for the buck. California may lead the nation in terms of a strong climate action and clean energy and energy efficiency goals. But just from your perspective, having spent time at both the state and federal level driving climate policy, what does California need to do to continue being that front runner and leader? And in what ways can local communities or even citizens contribute to that policy? California simply needs to accelerate the aggressiveness of its climate policy timelines. Our existing statutory, you know, 
100% by 2045 kind of bills are not nearly aggressive enough to get us where we need to go. We need to move the needle, turn up the, the timeline uh, across the board in every sector for what we were previously saying is 2045 or 2050 and, and turn that to 2030 in terms of specific legislation. Like I said, Senator Stern's bill, SB 582, people need to support it. Uh, people need to get the message that California has really fallen behind globally. We're even you know, behind the Biden administration at this point in terms of the aggressiveness of our climate goals. People can go to our website, www.theclimatecenter.org. We have a related website, which is www.climatesafeca.org. People can click on our buttons to support, register their individual support for the Climate Safe California campaign, as well as Senator Stern's bill specifically. And then similarly for our community energy resilience program, it's just the climatecenter.org slash microgrids. In the upper right corner, there's a page where people can click on to register their support for SB 99, Senator Dodd's bill to accelerate development of community energy resilience. People need to get the message that it, it is achievable and it must be achieved if we're going to avoid global catastrophe. And there are legislative proposals that are going to help get us to where we need to go. And people need to get involved politically to make these things happen. Can you tell us a bit more about how the Community Energy Resilience Act is going to or would be able to help local communities prepare for climate-related disasters and uh, public safety power shutoffs or PSPS events, especially as we're on the verge of another very dangerous wildfire season? The utilities have been enacting PSPS events, just a last-ditch effort to avoid wildfires by shutting off people's power, and millions of people were shut off with power. And that helps avoid liabilities for the utilities and their associated shareholders, but it creates enormous problems for everyone else. To help mitigate that, the state efforts to date have focused on grid subset segmenting, which just means installing closing equipment so you can more readily cut off certain segments of the grid that are in particularly high wildfire risk areas. And then quite frankly, a, a rapid installation of diesel and fossil generation across the state. It's really shocking how much diesel we already have in the state. There's information available from various existing air quality districts about proliferation of diesel gensets, both industrial scale and then individuals. I mean, everyone rushes out to hardware stores and puts a diesel generator in their backyard, which is a horrific outcome. But that's what's happening right now. And a lot of that is also happening with ratepayer and taxpayer funds. The state has allocated uh, the last two fiscal years about $125 million. It's gone out to, to um, local governments, most of which is funded installation of a diesel generation, which is polluting short term, maybe only used one or two days a year. And when it's used, it's, it's a public health hazard for anyone near it. It's a noise hazard. It's really, really short-sighted. It's very understandable what's happening, but it, it's really short-sighted because you're making a huge capital investments in a technology which is fossil-based, which creates an air pollution source, which doesn't serve anybody. The smarter way to, to do this is to look from a community-wide perspective, place the new distributed clean energy infrastructure where it makes sense from the community basis. Put the solar where it should go, put the batteries where it should go, put the fuel cells where it should go, put the EV charging where it should go. Have a community vision of what this could look like, and then start taking advantage of potential federal and state funding. If there isn't a pre-approved, already general plan compliant document which says, 
yeah, this is commensurate with where we want to go for enhanced energy resilience. It's really hard to get that done. So the bill, SB 99, would create that mechanism so that local governments can develop these local community energy resilience plans, which make it possible to take advantage of private funding, federal funding, state funding to build these things and do it in a way which is cleaner, smarter, better, faster for, for everyone. I think it's common for a lot of folks to think of, you know, resiliency and power outage as a problem solved by backup generation or on-site generation and energy storage. And often the, the energy efficiency component of the solution kind of is, is left out or not considered. And just want to get your perspective on how energy efficiency can enable more cost-effective resiliency planning. Energy efficiency has to be lumped together with battery storage and local generation. It, it all basically boils down to demand response capabilities and the ability of demand response providers at the even at the residential scale to have a price signal and participate in enhancing the local resilience of their local grid. Ideally, what happens is there does start to be a market mechanism by which every individual homeowner can participate in enhancing the resilience of the local grid. And whether that be through, you know, residential scale demand response, or even, you know, this this sort of taps into the EV conversation earlier, taking their electric vehicle and using that as a, a grid resource potentially. I look at the numbers on EV market penetration and it's amazing to think about the the amount of mobile storage which could potentially become line in the next 10 years. Most people, well, because people have ranked range anxiety, you know, EVs are coming out with three, 400 mile range, which means a big battery. Well, that battery that's going to be potentially sitting in a lot of people's driveways is way, way, way bigger than a lot of the residential scale backup batteries, which are currently being installed to prepare for PSPS events. There's a huge fleet of, of mobile grid assets that could potentially be tapped into if we had the right policies in place. So in a perfect world, there is a mechanism whereby people can get paid to, to do residential scale demand response, shutting off, but beyond that, becoming energy prosumers, reporting to the grid from their residential scale battery or maybe their EV and getting paid for it. Last August, we had the first capacity shortfall outage in 20 years. And that was an embarrassment to everybody. Well, think about the relative magnitude of that outage, which is not that big, uh, and then compare that to the relative magnitude of the increase in capacity of all the mobile storage that potentially could come online in the next 10 years. Is a solution in front of us, basically, which is having a local regulatory and market structure so that at the most granular level, everyone can participate and help support the resilience of the local grid. So all these things have to work in concert together. Energy efficiency and residential scale demand response, as well as creating market structures so that people can export and support the local grid that way. Is there any other legislation or any other proceedings or policy objectives that you would recommend that local communities kind of focus more intently on or prioritize with their limited time? SB 99, it creates the framework for that so that there can start to be tools that are utilized by local governments to systematically think about doing all these things. In terms of additional bills, legislation authored by Assemblymember 2, AB 1087, would create a new support mechanism to create 
community resilience hubs, which would be places where people could go in during PSPS and other events. That's, that's out there as well. So we're at a really interesting evolutionary point. A new electricity system, which isn't one, two, three, four percent local generation, but 20, 30, 40 percent local generation. And this is all made possible by technology changes. And so it's getting people to even start with understanding what's happening and, and the dramatic opportunities that provides for a more resilient and cleaner system. There's a, a educational work that needs to be done to get people to see what is possible. I and mean, that's what SB99 starts to do. And then we need to do the hard work of actually doing the planning and getting the permits and getting the funding to, to build all this. It's going to be a journey. It's not going to happen quickly enough. But if people start to see the end point where every local government is necessarily getting into the energy resilience business and planning for it, I think it's a, it's a really promising future vision that, that people would want to go on to and then figure out how to make happen locally. So that's what nine starts to set in motion. It's, it's the beginning of a, of a radical evolution. It's not just to California, right? I mean, this is happening globally. The bill talks about the process whereby this could be a, a arrived upon and having gatherings that bring together community-based organizations, labor unions, technology providers, environmental justice advocates, you know, housing advocates, Anyone that has a stake in, in all of this and trying to reflect the aspirations of these different interest groups in a plan, there are going to be conflicts. But local governments do that anyway at some level already. I mean, there's always a general plan. When there are updates to the general plan, you have to, to navigate things like, what are the setbacks? We need more affordable housing. So somebody's not going to be excited about more traffic on their road. All these issues are hard, but the conversations have to be had. Just necessarily, those brokered agreements on how to build this stuff need to be led by and brokered by and solved by local government. To those who would say, well, we don't, we don't want this here, I think the argument would be, well, the alternative is worse. The alternative is everyone has a diesel generator or a propane generator in their backyard, and that's horrific or the utility is going to pop a diesel gen set in a substation next to an apartment building in a downtown area. So this is going to be hard and difficult and time-consuming, but it's the only way forward. There's a lot of really interesting things that could happen if we have the foresight to enact the policies to make this all happen. Yeah, I totally agree. Kurt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was really great to get your insight about how our communities in California can move forward towards an energy-resilient future. To learn more, visit www.theclimatecenter.org. And to show your support for the Climate Save California campaign and SB99, visit www.climatesafeca.org. Remember that reducing your energy use today means securing a safer, more affordable, and sustainable tomorrow. For more information on energy efficiency opportunities that can help you save energy and money, visit SoCalREN.org or call 877-785-2237.